with you. Could you turn to Romans chapter 16? I'm starting to call these sermons the sermons of the elbows because that's how I have to write them on my stomach. <laughs> it's been really fun. And they're a lot less easy to read this way, too. Um, we're starting to wind down our study of the book of Romans. We're coming to the end. I don't know when we started. I have to look it up. Next week will be our last week in the book of Romans. But um, it's probably been over a year, I'm sure. Almost to the end, but not quite to the end. Because Paul, the apostle, although he has done the traditional end thing, which is the greetings, um, which should wrap up a letter, he isn't quite finished. He's just not quite you know how it is. He has a, a few extra things, some final warnings, a few more exhortations to give to the flock in Rome. And that says something, I think, wonderful about Paul. He's not a formalist. He doesn't have to, oh, I'm already in the greetings. I'd better stop talking. He loves them so much that ideas keep popping into his head. So even though he's already kind of at the end of the letter and he's writing the hello there's and all that and the so-and-so greets you and greets so-and-so, he stops right in the middle and goes, well, you know, I never did say this. So he's going to he just... He's always got something in mind that's beneficial to the people he's writing to, so that's what he wants to say. He's a passionate advocate of his Lord, a servant of Christ, and he loves God's people, so he's not ready to stop right there. And his love was very evident in the warmth conveyed in the greetings themselves we talked about last time. But here it is from verses 1 through 16, but here is, uh, it's evident in his interruption as well that you see his love flowing out. In the first 16 verses, he greets his friends and fellow laborers in the Roman church and his mind and heart are full with memories of fellowship and shared labor and self-sacrifice and just tender regard for one another and he concludes the greetings with a, a gentle note in verse 16 he says greet one another with a holy kiss all the churches of Christ greet you the holy kiss is, is still practiced in some churches in some parts of the world where that's more of a cultural thing I know we're not going to do it here guys don't worry but you know in some cultures men kiss each other all the time in, in a greeting sort of way and it's not like a big deal at all and uh, it's considered totally appropriate it's like our version of a handshake or a warm friendly hug or something like that very innocent very proper and uh, that was part of their culture then and he's just saying greet each other warmly and, and treat each other tenderly all the memories and the thoughts of unity and good labor together with Christ remind Paul of the dangers that can spoil all of that stuff in, in any church. And so that's why his mind, I think, is triggering the way it goes. He's thinking of all these wonderful things, the unity, the power, the, the uh, holiness, the obedience of the Roman church and how well they're doing and how much they do love each other and how much he loves them. And then he's, it just comes into his mind, you know what could spoil the whole thing? And so he says in verse 17, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Deception. There's always a potential for individuals to cause problems in a church. And frankly, Paul says to keep an eye out for those kind of people. There needs to be a certain level of vigilance because of that word deceive in verse 18. Deception is to be led astray before you know it happened, right? Unwittingly. Suddenly, you're involved with this person. They're talking to you all the time. You're 
kind of engage with them and you like them and all of a sudden you find yourself in all kinds of trouble because they've been pulling you away from the truth. And it just happens. It can happen not only to you individually but to a group of people within a church and that makes it even more deadly and more dangerous. Deception is, uh, has a lot to do with, well, he uses flattery and sweet words here. Strong personalities, uh, pretended friendships. The thing to look out for, Paul says, are those who cause dissensions, factions, or hindrances, and the word hindrances is that word we've talked about before, stumbling blocks, that Jesus talked about and Paul talks about in other places. Dissensions refers to creating a kind of disharmony, even parties within the church who form a kind of clique of uh, criticism toward maybe the leaders of the church or the direction of the church or whatever. Um, we were in a church one time where the, the, the choir was at war with another group in the church. <laughs> it was just like, it's like a definite thing, you know. And uh, they used to eat music ministers annually. <laughs> and uh, they'd always be gone. The work, um, they work outside, uh, inside the church, but outside of biblical principles for dealing with problems or dealing with issues. And of course, people have a right to their opinion. They have a right to criticize, but it must be done properly. must be done biblically, right? And there's a right way and there's a wrong way. That is, it has to be done with biblical attitudes and it has to be done with biblical actions. Let's talk about attitudes a little bit. The primary attitude that every Christian owes to every other Christian, so it includes even the leaders, um, is love. Love is the primary quality we're all supposed to have towards one another. Christian love. If love is not present, then something is out of kilter. And if you're involved with a group or a person or whatever that where love is not the dominant reality, seeking the good of other people, that's what love is, then even, even those you oppose, then, then it's the wrong group. There's something horrible going on there. There's something wrong with that person. The obligation of those in the church is always to love all, even one's enemies. And the problem person can usually be noted by a lack of the spirit of love. Love would preclude, disallow, slanderous gossip, backbiting, party spirit, and divisiveness. What did we read in Romans 13.10? Love does no wrong to a neighbor, right? So if that's part of what's going on in some situation, then you need to get out of it. 1 Corinthians 13.4, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It is not provoked. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. In my experience, divisive persons usually fail the love test in several key ways, usually noticeable ways. So if you're sharp and just have your eyes open, it picks up pretty quick. It's not like we have a big problem here. How long have I been here? 12 years, 13 years? We've never had a big problem here. <laughs> But I've been in churches where there's been problems before. I've seen it. Um, the church is safe then when its members practice love and take note of that person who acts contrary to love, not to beat him up or be mean to him or anything, but just to take note. That person has a problem. That's not a person to gravitate to in terms of listening to their criticisms or anything else. If they don't have love, turn away from them, Paul says. What kind of a person is it that shares secret comments or levels criticism? Are they, are they patient? Are, are they kind? Are they being humble? 
Are they not easily provoked? Are they ready to overlook wrongs? Or do they have to broadcast them or more so whisper them in ears behind the back of those they're criticizing? These are qualities of godliness, kindness, humility, not being provoked. And those who can't live in the love of Christ should not be able to draw God's people to their side to work mischief. That shouldn't happen. Shouldn't let it happen. So the infinitive verb there in, in verse 17 is translated, keep your eye on. The Greek word is, is skopein, and we get our word scope from that word. Skopio is a, is a Greek word, I, I see. And the idea is to scope them out, right? To use a modern vernacular, to observe, to pay close attention to, to kind of scrutinize the individual that would cause hindrances or put stumbling blocks in the way of people. Be aware that a divisive person needs to have an eye kept on them. Now let's see what we're not talking about here. We're not talking about a witch hunt, and we're not talking about snooping on each other. We're not talking about um, thought police. We're not talking about being driven by suspicions and going around checking everybody out, scoping them all out. Mm. Well, I kind of noticed a bad attitude in you last week. I'm not sure, you know, not that. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about individuals who've had a bad day and people that are in a bad mood or they have a bad moment. We're, talking about, uh, we're not talking about people who are just sort of confused or, or have legitimate questions, which are always uh, proper to, to ask, of course. The divisive person is, is chronically, decidedly, determinedly, repeatedly a bad influence. That's the kind of person that's tearing down and working against unity and peace in the church. I mean, it's like their job to do that, as they see it. Of course, they think they're doing a good thing, probably, but that's usually not the result. So instead of graciously agreeing to disagree and discussing whatever the issues are with the leadership and love and differences are too great than graciously withdrawing from the fellowship, rather they feel they need to subvert from within the doctrinal unity of the church. So they usually work on people that are weak or less knowledgeable, or they, do, or they build friendships that are so tight that they can influence a person that way and then work that friendship against the person. They do it quietly and behind closed doors. And what Paul is saying is that just can't be permitted. That's not okay. That's not okay. Paul in verse 17 not only uses the term dissension, but hindrances or stumbling blocks, as we said. A church cannot allow, leaders in a church cannot allow, a, an individual or individuals to put stumbling blocks before members of the flock. If somebody puts a stumbling block before you, what's going to happen? You might trip. And we're not going to... Don't make any jokes now. <laughs> you might end up on crutches for heaven's sake. No, um, we don't want people tripping spiritually and falling down and, and getting hurt or anything like that. And that stumbling blocks trip people up. They make them fall. And that's not acceptable to allow that to go on. So Paul is quite specific um, these hindrances are, quote, contrary to the teaching which you learned, unquote. So this is a case of a deliberate, deliberate effort to go against Christian truth or Christian morality or both. The moral issue is just as important as the doctrinal issue. And it's, you know, in terms of my experience, it's probably more common today because we live in an era where people don't care about truth. <laughs> but they do care about fulfilling their appetites and doing whatever they want to do. It's, it's just the kind of time we live in. Previous generations where you had a pretty rig rigorous social code and everybody sort of adhered to that, most of the um, creeps in the church, if you want to call them that, whatever, would be doctrinally perverting the church because that's what they had the freedom to do. They had the freedom to let their mind go in weird directions. 
as, and culturally. So they had intellectual attacks on Christianity. But today, that's why so many, you ever notice in the 1800s how so many cults brought forth? I mean, you don't really see a lot of major cults growing in the last hundred years. But in the 1800s, cults boomed. For one thing, we have freedom of religion here, of course, but you had to sort of hold to a moral code, so it was all intellectual nonsense that kind of grew in that era. People just making up their own ideas or having their own revelations or all that kind of stuff. So, But nowadays, it's almost the other way around. It's uh, People don't care whether a, a doctrine is true or not, generally. It's like, oh, the, yeah, the deity of Christ, who cares? You know, yeah, you want to believe that? Fine. But they want to live whatever lifestyle they want to live. So they want to make any choices they want to make, regardless of what the Bible says. So usually, in my experience, this kind of happens more often, still happens doctrinally, but more often it happens in the moral area. And you can see right away how that would be divisive. The moral stumbling block usually comes when somebody wants to justify some sin of theirs, and so they go about quietly trying to gain the sympathy and approval of people who care about them in the church. So if they can do that, what have they got? A faction. A faction to defend them in their sin, Right? So you can see how that would be divisive right there. The sympathetic group, and, the, and it's just sympathy and, and kindness that makes people want to support the, the, the uh, divisive person. The sympathetic group then turns against the leaders who are holding the individual accountable to a moral, biblical standard. So one person's sin can shatter the unity of whole churches. And I've seen it happen. Not here, but I've seen it happen. I've seen people try to do it here. It happens more often than one would think, and it's really tragic when that does happen. That's why it is equally important for every member of the church to be as committed to correct theology and Christian moral teaching as the leadership would be. Just as committed. Just as committed. It's not like, oh, the leaders, yeah, they have to be committed to that stuff. That's not how it works. We're all committed to that, right? The only thing the leader's job is to do is to facilitate and, and serve you to help you realize all of that, that that's all true. That's our job, just to teach you and be a, um, an example for you in those areas. And you're supposed to step right up with your own will and your own sense of what's appropriate and get out there and be right, do right, and hold on to what's right. Sinners need to be rebuked by all with gentleness and with love, yes, but with clarity and with a firm dedication to God's word, what God says. So we, meaning we all, cannot allow hindrances or stumbling blocks to cause dissension and cripple, hate that word cripple, effective ministry in our church. We just can't allow that to happen. So what do we do? Well, what does Paul say? Take note of those who would do this. In verse 17, he says, turn away from them. Don't give them the time of day. People who work in a manner contrary to the teaching of the Bible need to be turned away from. Not that they shouldn't be given an opportunity to repent. I mean, that is assumed here. In fact, in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says to Titus, who's a pastor, he's writing to a pastor, he says, reject a factious man, factious, a divider, after a first and second warning. So obviously the, the effort has to be made to go to that person and say, you know what, what you're doing is causing division, it's inappropriate, you need to stop doing that. They do it again, you go back again, hey, you know what, you, this is inappropriate, what you're doing is wrong, we're going to have to take action if you don't stop. They do it again, time to go. Turn away from them, time to go. Plenty of opportunities to, provided, to be provided to turn away from the path of divisiveness, but when it's clear that such a turnaround is not going to happen, 
that person needs to be rejected. Jesus used the language, he said, let them be to you as a tax gatherer. And there's nothing more horrifying than a tax gatherer, right? <laughs> Paul explains more about these individuals in verse 18. He says, um, such men are slaves, not of the Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So their motives are not governed by their love for Christ, but their own interests or cravings. Whether that be for power or some sin or simply egotism or the exaltation of self. And that does happen. You know, you think people really can't be like that, but there are people that are really like that. They just, they exist. Some people who really are powerless in most areas of their lives find that they do have power with their tongue. And they do find a delight in being able to uh, plant a word here or a lie there and actually pit people against each other. And I think they actually relish having caused conflict. I think there's a, a kind of a perverse delight in that. And that's a sad thing, but it's a real thing. Others simply want their way, and they're willing to cause whatever problems may have to come to get to their goal where they want to be. So if a church splits over them, that's all right. Not that they wanted that to happen, but it happens. Okay, I still got my thing. That's what they were interested in. And I like to believe that even heretics are sincere people, but Paul doesn't even seem to be very interested in their sincerity. He says they are deceivers who use smooth and flattering speech. So we always need to be aware that this can come our way. We've never really had a doctrinal heretic working from the inside in a major way in our church, although I have seen that, like I said, in other churches. But we have had people trying to turn people against other people in order to justify sins. And always they do it stealthily, always they do it in whispers, um, hoping to plant seeds of division and enjoying the power of the tongue to turn brother against brother. It's an ugly thing when that's exposed. It's a, it's a horrible thing to see. So don't be fooled by the flattering speech of those who are slaves of their appetites. I, I know I can confide in you because I know you'll understand. You know that kind of talk? You know? Everybody else, they're, they're, you know, the leaders are so rigid, I can't talk to them. They're, they're, they don't understand. They're, they're so harsh and mean and, and they, they just don't want to have anything to do with, with my problem. And, but I know you understand and I, I, I have to do this, you know. And, oh, well, well, yeah. You know. That's how it works. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Now, verse 19 seems kind of disconnected from what has just been said, but because it begins with the word for, it is connected directly, that little helpful uh, connector there. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. So he says, okay, keep your eye on the divisive, Turn away from them. They are not slaves of Christ, but deceivers. And then he says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. I mean, how does that connect up with what he just said? Well, the Roman church was a good, solid church, doing their things right. And they were known for that. And I think he's, uh, he means that they are a ripe target. And I don't know if heretics personally identify sharp churches to go to and make trouble in or if they are simply demonically moved in that direction, but a good church is a place where uh, bad things come and attempts are made to uh, cause problems. 
The church is known. Heretics often target churches that are well known to pick off as many unsuspecting Christians as they can. Sometimes they come to your door and talk about the kingdom or wear white shirts and little tags on them and ride bicycles. Sometimes they bring new revelations and all kinds of things. In fact, if you study door-to-door heretics, not that going door-to-door is wrong, but if you bring false doctrine, it's wrong. They are looking for religious people, and I've had many conversations with those folks, and they're usually pretty honest about it once you get into a really a good personal level with them that you can talk to them. They are not really interested in converting atheists and unbelievers and pagans. They want to hear you say at the door, oh, we're Christians here. When you say that, the lights light up and they go, oh, here's a possibility. If you say, I'm an atheist, they know they probably don't have a chance. But if you say, oh, we're Christians here, ah, They've already got a religious sensibility. We can bend that. That's how they start the conversations. They're trained to do that. They're trained to create doubt and then to offer their own certainty, which always involves their group or their church being the only real one in the whole wide world that really has the truth, right? Paul says, you are so well known to the Romans. Don't be surprised if people show up and want to join your church or look good and then try to bring the whole thing down. Keep your eyes out, he says. Scope it out. Don't be overly suspicious, but don't be unsuspecting and naive either. The signs are there. So, no biblical attitudes such as love and no biblical actions. Biblical actions are simple enough. You, you are supposed to go to the person you have a problem with before you ever, what? Talk to them and talk to them and talk to them and talk to them. So if somebody's got a, a critical problem, the first question always to ask them is, and have you talked to them about it? See? That's pretty simple, right? Somebody's grumbling about this or that, and, and uh, you just say, well, what, what did they say when you talked to them about it? That's an even better question. What did, because you're assuming they did the right thing. What did they say when you talked to them about it? Well, I haven't talked to them. You know what they'd say. If I, oh, well, you know what? I can't even get involved until you've talked to them personally. That's the right thing. And if they're not willing to do that, they're not biblical, turn away, turn away. See, that's how it works. That's the biblical action. Those who whisper and criticize but don't openly express their grievances to those they whisper about are not seeking unity and peace. So take note of them. Keep your eye out. The whole emphasis of the New Testament is to go privately to a brother who you think is in the wrong and seek to correct him face to face. Then matters can be worked out. If not, then take a witness or two with you before you talk to anybody else and make sure it's done as privately as possible, but you get confirmation from one or two extra witnesses. If it can't be resolved there, then it needs to go more public so that there's not whispering going on, but an open resolution can be handled. The secret whispering and the backbiting and the creation of dissension is never a possibility if you do things biblically. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. Luke 17, 3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. It's over with. Galatians 6, 1, brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's what the spiritual man does. Notice that whispering and backbiting and sharing people's failures around the church is just not what godly people do. 
So take note of those who do that and turn away and don't participate in divisive gossip, especially the kind that leaves impressions about people's character and discourages the truth from being sought out, that whole whisper thing. Now, Paul, Paul's final exhortation, which really deserves a sermon in itself, um, verse 19, he rejoices over the Roman church for their obedience to the gospel and its moral principles. I'm rejoicing over you, he says, but, and this is his last command in the whole book, Last thought, last thing to remember, the last thing. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. That word innocent means unmixed, pure, unpolluted, undiluted, just singularly pure and unaffected, untainted. Our culture teaches exactly the opposite of this. Exactly the opposite. And many Christians have followed right along with the culture. Well, you know, a little evil is good for you. Right? Mix it up. Mix it up. Because, you know, you have to be exposed to it because, you know, like it's like, you know, a part of life, you know? you got to know the score! Right? To play with the big boys. People boast when their children become worldly wise. When they are grown up enough to dally in sin and things abominable to God. The whole culture is geared for that. For delighting in sin. And that's like a reward for growing up. The way our culture teaches us, in the way it's all laid out before us. Isn't that what we say? Delighting in sin is a reward for, for age. That's why they put those record label things on there. This one's for adults because it's filthy. And the whole TV rating system thing, the little thing that shows up in the corner of your TV screen, and, and the movie ratings, that's, that's the whole lesson about it. The word adult entertainment for what? For sleeve. The world says if you're 13, you've got a right to see all kinds of garbage like Austin Powers, which is just garbage. And so kids, they want to see it when they're 10. And their parents say, okay. And if you're 17, ooh, then you can really see sins and play with them and delight in them and enjoy them. That's the way the world thinks. Worldly wise. What a great word. That's so accurate and so wrong. It's exactly the opposite of what Paul says here. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. There are some things you should never desire to be grown up about. You want to be Peter Pan? Be Peter Pan about evil. To stay a child. <laughs> forever. 1 Corinthians 14.20 says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, but in evil be babes. Isn't that interesting? Do not be children in your thinking, be wise, mature, grown up, settled, understanding, but in evil be babes. Don't you don't have to know about it. Stay innocent 
regarding evil. And yeah, you know, we know it's there. And it's all around us. And we're not going to be able to avoid it being nearby. But we're not going to get close. And we're not going to let it pollute us. And we're not going to swim in the muck. Would you swim in a pond? If you found a beautiful pond out in the middle of walking through the woods and you wanted to go for a swim, and, the, and then you, you, you got all ready to jump in there and, and you had your bathing suit on, and, and, and then you notice this broken pipe and green sludge just pouring out of it into the pond, and you notice that the fish were floating upside down in there. Would you, would you jump in and swim? Would you? Why do it for your soul? I, I don't get it. Why are we so concerned about our health and not at all concerned about our souls or our children's? It's bizarre. It is bizarre. And you know why? Because it's a spiritual battle. Satan doesn't care if we're healthy. Healthy sinners are great. They can do more sins. And he thinks, if you're healthy, that's fine. He does, he's not upset about that. He's not. You know, you get, you know, you get like me, all gimpied up, and, and you go, man, Satan did this. He, he couldn't care if I could walk or begin. In fact, yeah, I'm probably less sinful because I can't run around and do as many sins. I can't, be, I can't get into much trouble. I can't see as many billboards. I, there's just all kinds of things that are, I'm protected from, you know? But, but the reality is, you know, that your soul is way more important. And the pollution that comes on the inside of your heart, that's way more important than swimming in a, in a pond of muck. So the next time that you get this inclination or this idea that, that you're supposed to well, I've got to immerse myself in the wickedness of my culture so I can relate to it and minister to it. You know, you know what Paul would say? <laughs> He'd say, look, be wise in your thinking, but in evil be a babe. Be innocent. Pr protect your own innocence. Well, what can I do? I'm not innocent. Well, start working on it. <laughs> William Hendrickson says of verse 19, he says, Paul wants the Romans to live in such a manner that they will be equal to the task of choosing what is good in the eyes of God and that they will be innocent or guileless about what is evil. They should be wise for the purpose of doing and promoting what is right and should not get mixed up with anything that in God's sight is wrong. And that's where that word innocent comes in. You don't mix it in with anything that's wrong. Anything! Evil is not something we want experience in. It comes along all by itself. You don't have to seek it out. We don't need to study it. You know what the biblical way is? The biblical way is to be so immersed in good, to be so caught up in, in purity and holiness and love and virtue, so aware of what it means to love God and to trust God, and live for God that evil will just be so obvious because you're so immersed in what's right. It's when you walk with a foot in both worlds that it becomes confusing and difficult and treacherous and tripping. See? It's supposed to be unmixed. We will know evil because we will know the good so well. That's the goal. And you know, that's what they do when they train people to detect counterfeits. They don't say, oh, look for this counterfeit and look for that counterfeit because counterfeiting changes. They might do this this time and do this next time and do that this time. They train them how to look for the authentic thing. And when you know what to look for for the authentic thing, then the counterfeits just show up. Hey, that's a counterfeit because I know what the authentic thing looks like. It's exactly the way you're supposed to think about personal holiness and godliness. 
You're so devoted to what's right that the good, I mean, the evil just shows up and up, that's evil, up, that's not right. And it's like the person that brings hindrances in the church and you see that attitude, well, that's not right. Well, you, they, they don't love everybody. And uh, right there you know. It's not like a big, difficult, oh, wow, I wonder if they, they don't love everybody. There's something wrong with them. They need to be ministered to, not listened to. That's how it works. Imagine the mind of a young person raised on MTV and network television and Hollywood movies. I mean, innocence is something to be violated with glee, not protected. And modern children are enormously confused about what good is. And that's a deliberate effort of the culture to make them that confused. Because the idea is to bend their, their sympathies towards sin. How do you do that? Because you set up a hero and you have the hero do evil things. And then there's that internal conflict. But, but he's the hero. But, 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 and they just don't know. They, 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 their emotions say that it's good. Even if you train them and teach them in their, in, in their head... Well, what they're doing is wrong. Uh, I know we're enjoying this, and it's, it's a lot of fun, and it's very exciting to watch our hero, but, but yeah, when he did that, that was not good. You know, you can say that, but the heart that approves of that character, that hero, is confused. Because those things hit the emotions, not just the head. So innocence is thrashed. But you know, when guarded, when you protect innocence, even in a wicked city like Rome, or Los Angeles. Being innocent in what is evil, that has an extraordinary power if wisdom in what is good is cultivated with it. Those of you that are really senior saints, you remember when the whole culture basically taught virtue, don't you? You probably remember that. You remember when you couldn't hear any bad words ever on the airwaves. I mean, it just simply did not exist. And when you turned on the television set, you knew nobody was going to be in bed with somebody else's wife or, some, or outside of marriage. You would never see that. There might be an allusion to it as some monstrous thing, but there, you wouldn't see it. You know that. The whole culture said, virtue, virtue. Now, I'm not sure the culture understood from a Christian point of view how to teach you what is good, and I think that's why we fell. We had a shell of morality without really understanding the wise and, and the spiritual power that was in there. Because if you don't know Christ, you can't live it. But you at least have a memory. I mean, I have a memory. I'm 43. I mean, I have a memory. It's very very distant because I was very young. But I remember when you couldn't hear bad words on there. I'm, I'm probably the last generation. People my age are probably the last people that will ever exist. When I die, that's it. When people that are my age die, seriously, there won't be anybody left that actually remembers a time when none of that stuff was in the popular culture. None of it. You know? It's amazing. But you have to be wise in what is good as well as innocent in what is evil. So you have to understand the good and the wonder of it and the virtue of it and the power of it and the joy of it to be able to hold off evil. Verse 20. And then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Those words go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15, where the promise was made that someday somebody would come that would crush the head of Satan under his feet. Talking about the Messiah in a very, very 
subtle way, way back there in the very, very beginning of the Bible. And the, the message is, the bad guy won't win. He won't be picking you off. He won't be rending the flock. He won't be successful at winning you over to destructive and soul-destroying things if you are wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil because then God will crush him under your feet. The fruit of evil is evil. The fruit of wisdom is goodness and spiritual victory. Matthew Henry said it so well 350 years ago. He said, When we come to God for spiritual victories, we must not only look to Him as the Lord of hosts, from whom all power is, but as a God of peace with us, speaking peace to us, working peace in us, creating peace for us. The God of peace. Victory comes from God as the God of peace. For in all our conflicts, peace is what we must contend for. God is the God of peace will restrain and vanquish all that cause divisions and offenses. And so, break the peace of the church. The blessing the apostle expects from God is victory over Satan. This comprehends, that means includes, all designs and devices of Satan against souls to defile, disturb, and destroy them. All his attempts to keep us from the purity of heaven, the peace of heaven here, and possession of heaven hereafter. They might think, will not these adversaries of our souls be too hard for us? No. Fear not, though you cannot overcome in your own strength and wisdom, yet through him that loved us we shall be more than conquerors. The Bible shows us the way to victory in our lives and in our church life. Be alert. Keep your eye on those who would trip you up. Be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And God will stomp that snake. And he can wiggle and he can squirm and he can hiss all he wants to, but a divine foot is on it. And he ain't going nowhere. He ain't going to be able to reach you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being the God of peace who not only brings peace to us, through justification, through the death of Christ, where we have peace with you. But we can have peace within if we follow your path and let you do your thing. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength to believe what we've heard this morning, to move forward in it, to live it, to do right by you in all things. Help us to be wise in what is good, to know good so well. And evil will never be able to trick us. And as far as evil goes, Lord, we can just let it be. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.